Let's open in our Bibles to Luke chapter 10. As we continue our series on the cornerstone. Um, friends, last Sunday was a very intense Sunday for this church. We, we studied the beginning of Luke chapter 10, and in it, Jesus shares very heavy words about eternal punishment. And I, as I was thinking about this text, meditating on this text, preparing the sermon, I was depressed the entire week. I didn't sleep the night before, as I shared with you. I preached this sermon. We had an interruption in this sermon. And, and things were at work. Things were happening as we were talking about the doctrine of eternal punishment. I learned on Monday morning that right up from the road from us, at the exact same time, the exact same thing was happening at a neighbor church, St. Andrew's Evangelical Pastor felt burdened to preach on hell, couldn't sleep the night before, depressed all week, preached the sermon, was interrupted in the middle of the sermon. The exact same thing happened somewhere else as it happened here. That, that is heavy to think about the spiritual dynamics of standing and preaching God's word and receiving the whole counsel of God, not just the pieces that we want to hear. Well, last week we heard about Jesus sending out the 72, and that's where he gave these very intense words about eternal judgment. But today we read about Jesus receiving back the 72, and these are some marvelous words about what it means to be a believer. So let me read for us in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's pray together. Jesus, you want to teach us this morning about rightly placing our joy and our rejoicing. And so I pray and I plead that we would listen well to you, that we would be a joyful people that rejoice rightly. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so the 72 have gone out on this short-term missions trip, and then they've come back to Jesus, and they are ecstatic. They've seen some things. You guys know the feeling. Many of you have been on a short-term missions trip. 30 of you have spent $100,000 to go to the Bahamas and build a stoop for an orphanage, and you come back and you're pumped. God showed up. Things happened. I'm being very sarcastic about some short-term missionary trips that can be little vacations. Uh, But this trip was not one of those. This was ordered by Jesus. Jesus called them to do this, and they saw real fruit. Look at verse 17. They saw things happen. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, that's interesting because the 12 apostles, the inner circle that's chosen by God, they had trouble with demons. But here the 72 are able to go out on this trip and see demons subject to the name of Jesus. They probably saw healings and exorcisms, and they're excited. And they tell Jesus they're excited. And then Jesus takes that excitement, and he ups the ante. He says, it's not only this. It's not only that you saw demons subject to your name. Verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, what on earth is Jesus talking about with scorpions and snakes? 
You may have heard of uh, the Pentecostal snake-handling pastor from Kentucky who was killed last month by a snake bite. And many who handle snakes will point to a passage like this and point to passages in Mark's gospel that says we have the freedom to handle these things and not be hurt. But that is not what Jesus is saying here. Because a serpent has been a long-standing image of Satan, of the evil one, and Jesus is talking about here a clash of kingdoms that is happening. When the, when the disciples go out and they see this spiritual warfare, it is a clash of kingdoms, and Satan's power is being tread underfoot, and he has no ultimate authority. A few scenes later, Jesus is going to cast out a demon, and he's going to say, it is by the finger of God that I do this. Satan, Jesus says, is like a strong man. He has a home, and he has things in that house that he has taken from other people. But when Jesus arrives, there is a man who is stronger than the strong man, and he undoes Satan's work. He breaks into Satan's house, and he scatters the things that Satan has collected. And Jesus says, He does it by the finger of God. You know, the world is not this yin and yang struggle between good and evil and right and wrong and God and the devil. The Bible tells us that the entire cosmos, anything you can see, hear, touch, imagine, has been created by God. It's sustained by God and it's going to be inherited by God. And when there is a conflict between God and the devil, a created being, it's like God stirring his finger in his creation. That is the power of God. That is the world that every believer dwells in. Well, essentially, Jesus and the 72 are talking about, as they think about what's happening here, a joy in doing. They are seeing fruit in ministry. They're seeing power over sin. They're seeing protection from harm. These things that they're experiencing are the normal experience of every Christian. What they're getting excited about, this joy in doing, is the normal experience for everyone who names Christ. They are seeing fruit in ministry. Because God's power is greater than Satan's, 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, there is not a thing you can do as a believer in Jesus' name that does not bear fruit. From changing a diaper to leading a city to faith in Jesus Christ, all of this is fruit and worthy of God's worship. It's worthy worship for him. That if you are the good soil, the enduring soil, your plant will grow up and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Ministry fruit is the normal experience of every Christian. Power over sin is the normal experience of every Christian. You will experience victory over sin. Greater is you, is he who is in you than he who is in the world. There is not a temptation that can seize you, but that you can overcome in Jesus. You will, as a believer, experience victory over sins in your life. And thirdly, there's protection from harm, Jesus says. He says, nothing shall hurt you. He's talking to these disciples, and he uses a Greek double negative. You can't do that in English. When you use a double negative, it means a positive. So if your kids come to you and say, I don't got no money, you smile and say, great, stop bothering me. But in Greek, that's an emphatic. Jesus says, saying, absolutely nothing is going to hurt you. Now, what does Jesus mean by this? He can't mean that these guys will never suffer harm because a few chapters later, he promises disciples, if you follow me, you will suffer harm. 
And almost to a man, his 12 apostles will die very gruesome deaths. Jesus means that suffering is within the mysterious, sovereign hand of God. There is not a hair that will fall from a believer's head because God has been outwitted by Satan. God is over all of it. God holds all of it. And suffering, even suffering, happens in his mysterious hands. So you see what's happening here? The disciples come joyful in what they were able to do. They saw a few scenes of God's power, and Jesus says, you don't even know the half of, half of it. You don't even know the half of what you should be joyful for. You have fruit in ministry. You have power over sin. You have victory over harm that will happen to you. There is great joy that's to be had in ministry. Great joy to be had in the doing. Nevertheless, Jesus says, even though that is true, even though there is joy in those things, nevertheless, and if we've been paying attention and heard what God said on the mountain in the transfiguration, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. We need to stop celebrating these things. We need to stop talking and we need to lean in and listen to what Jesus is going to tell us. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's what I want you to rejoice about. That's what I want you to get excited about. Do you see this line that Jesus is drawing in the sand between these two things? The disciples rejoice in what they do. Jesus says, rejoice in who you are. The disciples are rejoicing and getting stuff done for God. Jesus says, rejoice in what God has done for you. The disciples rejoice in bearing fruits. Jesus says, rejoice in having roots. The disciples rejoice in bustling like Martha. And Jesus says, rejoice in basking like Mary. You're talking about doing, and I'm telling you about being. I am telling you about the joy that is found in being a believer in Jesus Christ. I tell you, nothing will turn the grace of God in our lives on its head like understanding what Jesus is saying in this one line. Nothing will affect your Christian life like this when Jesus says to you, I love you and I want you for you and not what I think you can do for me. Do you hear that this morning, believer? Do you hear Jesus saying to you, I love you because I'm love. I love you because I've chosen you. I love you because I love you for you. And not because I think you're going to be an awesome believer. Not because I think you're going to achieve great things for my kingdom. Not because I think you're going to succeed in everything you put your hand to. I love you for you. That's my love for you. That's what it's like to experience love in being and not love in doing. I mean, think about it. Every other human relationship we have is tainted by doing over being. Every other relationship we have. Do you think that you're keeping your job right now because of who you are or because of what you do? It's what you do. You think you're going to pass your classes this semester based on who you are or what you do. It's what you do. Even in the people closest to us, even in friends and family, where we're the most free to be ourselves, where we can be loved for who we are and not on what we do, we're sinful people. 
We disappoint each other. We get frustrated with each other. We say nasty things to each other and we drift apart from people that we love because we are fallen and doing will always taint being in human relationships. We don't know any other way. When Julie and I were first-time parents and Judah was like two or three months old, we had a very intense pediatrician. And we would take Judah for our checkups and we would sweat to go into these things because it felt like an examination. We'd take him in and he was very thorough and he'd check Judah's ears and eyes and nose and mouth and all that. And then he would pull out his laptop and he would start asking us this checklist of questions. And he would say to us, okay, tell me, is Judah, uh, is Judah smiling now? And we'd say, well, yeah, he's kind of smiling. Wait, is he kind of smiling or is he really smiling? Well, you know, he kind of smirks and smiles. He's like, okay. He starts writing on his laptop and we're like, what's he writing about? Is Judah rolling over right now? Well, I mean, he he can kind of turn on his side. I don't know if it's really rolling. So it's not a true rolling over. No, it's not really. Start writing something down on the laptop. We're like, what is he writing? Can he hold his head up? Well, not really. Can he dribble a basketball? No. Can he do long division? Can he drive a stick shift? You know, we're like, oh my goodness, what is going on? What is he writing about our son? It's not that we loved Judah any less, but we walked in with this ball of joy and walked out with this ball of underperformance. (laughs) He wasn't doing, he wasn't measuring up. There is not a human relationship where we can really separate these things. We want to, we long to, we, we want to be in that kind of relationship. But doing will always taint being this side of heaven. And that's why this is so hard to grasp for the believer. Because we march straight into our Christian lives the same way we operate in this life in the world, doing what we know what to do. Strive, work, wrestle to gain something that, that, that was ours the moment we walked in the door. And when we do this in our Christian lives, when we let doing trump being, that's a path with a pitfall on either side that every single believer has experienced at one time or another. To the left, the pitfall to the left of defining your Christian life by what you do is pride. It has to be there. Pride has to be there. And that is for the doers. That is for the movers and the shakers. That's for the people that grab this Christian life with two hands and they want to do something for God. You know, as a young Christian, I thought that you entered the kingdom by faith and you stayed in the kingdom by works. And a seminary degree and a wife who breathes grace many years later has taught me that that is theological baloney. But my hands and my feet, they don't get it. I don't live it. I don't do this. I still act like the only good Christian is a moving Christian, a Christian who is doing something. And that makes me a restless person. That makes me a person who takes failure terribly. That makes me a person who feels like a victim when I have great ideas and great plans and they're met with real people and real circumstances. I hate it. I need Christian friends in my life who will come alongside me and say, step away from the whiteboard and enjoy Jesus for who he is and who he is making you to be. To the left is the pitfall of pride and I fall in that every single day. But to the right is the pitfall of shame. If the left is the doers, the right is the despairers. They still have the sense that things are to be done, but they are guilty for what hasn't been done. They're never feeling like they've done enough. 
And when they see other Christians who are active and doing things, that breeds in their heart jealousy and resentment. You and I have experienced this. You watch another believer, that that woman who is always hosting people in her house, always inviting people over, and you begin to think to yourself, I used to be like that. I used to be energetic like that. Why am I not that way? Why haven't I been that way in months? Or you think, what's that girl's problem? What's she trying to prove? Why is she trying to one-up me in something like this? We struggle with this, this despair and this jealousy and this resentment when we don't do what we think we should do. Both pitfalls, both kinds of people have put a stake in the ground on Christian doing, and both of us are measuring ourselves by it. We're proud of what we do. We're ashamed of what we don't do, but our vocabulary is Christian doing. That's all we know. We have a friend of ours, Julie and I, who is a wonderful woman. She's a church planter's wife. Um, she and her husband moved to the north, and they planted a church in a very difficult area. And uh, this brother had a vision to plant a 200-person church. He longed to see God's kingdom grow, and he wanted to, for good reasons, have, have this church grow to 200 people. He wanted to reach people for Jesus. Well, year after year after year, the church didn't grow, and it didn't grow, and it wasn't achieving what he set out to do. And as you know, as any husband in the room knows, that kind of failure vocationally is very hard to swallow. And after 10 years of this labor, and after 10 years of pleading with God for this kind of church, and after 10 years of not seeing that, the wife wrote him what I think is just a beautiful letter. She said to him, you know, honey, we have not done what we set out to do. We have not seen this church grow to 200 people. That's what we felt like God was leading us to do, and that has not happened. But I'll tell you what, you have never sacrificed your family on the altar of ministry. You have always been here for our family. You have always shown up at the volleyball and the basketball game. You have been a shoulder to cry on. You've been there to take pictures at prom. You have been the husband and the father we needed you to be, and that's what I celebrate. Man, when she said that she wrote him that letter, I was just absolutely touched by that. I was moved by that because this wife is perceiving the struggle of every single husband. He wants to succeed, And the wife is saying, look, I see your success. But then she said this, which I thought was so powerful. She said, you know what? After I wrote that letter and after I encouraged him with that, I realized that I was just replacing one kind of doing with another kind of doing. I was saying, yeah, we're not seeing doing in ministry, but we're seeing doing in family. I can't celebrate the doing that you've done for the church, but I want to celebrate the doing that you're doing in our family. At the end of the day, she was still talking about doing. We can't get out of this vocabulary by ourselves. It's all we know. What her husband did not need to hear is, yeah, you might be losing in this area, but you're winning in this area. He needed to hear, honey, you're Name is written in heaven. That's what you need to be excited about. That's worthy of rejoicing. Whatever happens in ministry, whatever happens in family, your name is written in heaven. For all eternity, forever and ever and ever, you will not be known as the man who never had a 200-person church. You'll be known as the man who is a friend of Jesus. 
You'll be known as the man whose name is written in heaven. You are a child of God. You will be pumping your palm branch in that great scene of glory with the best of them. Your name is written in heaven. That's what you rejoice in. Jesus is not saying there's no rejoicing to be had in ministry. Of course there is. Nor does Jesus say that Christians should hole up and just contemplate who they are and not what they do. Jesus just sent these guys out on a missions trip. He just told them to evangelize their neighbor. What Jesus is saying is that for the Christian, every act of doing pales in comparison to being to who you are in Jesus, to the fact that your name is written in heaven. Friend, I want you to look back over your week. Was this a week where you were able to pat yourself on the back for a job well done? You guarded times in the word and in prayer. You found opportunities to share your faith with other people. You gave your money and your time generously. That's wonderful. Praise God for that. That's amazing. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Or for some of you, was your week a total failure? Did you come in this morning ashamed of prayerless days, of short tempers, of faithlessness? I am so sorry. Nevertheless, do not rejoice that this week is going to be different, that you are going to be better and do better and look better and smell better than you did last week. Don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. A name written in heaven, a person who has repented and trusted in Jesus and been recorded in that great book of life, that's the one thing that can never be taken from you. That is the thing that is not going to be touched by what you do or don't do this week. That is what captures the Christian imagination. That is what stirs the Christian joy. It's forever. It's eternal. It's the gift of God. It's the grace of God to you. I'm always amused when uh, we're going through a flurry of wedding plans and you hear, maybe you guys have heard this before, I've heard it at least twice from somebody who is going to be a bridesmaid or some part in the wedding, and they say, I don't want to wear this or I don't want to wear this because I don't want to overshadow the bride. Have you guys heard people say this? You're laughing because maybe you've said it before. Um, I can't think of anything more ridiculous, and I just want to put my arm around this dear sister and say, "Um, sweetie, nobody's thinking about you. (laughs) This day is for the bride. (laughs) The bride is going to be dressed in white, We all know her, and we're here to see her. There is going to be music that's played, and we're going to all stand and turn our backs to you and our faces to the bride, and we're going to celebrate this woman walking down the aisle. This is the bride's day. doesn't matter whether you wear this or that or nothing at all. Nobody cares. We're not looking at you. This is the bride. Friend, if your name is written in heaven, if you have experienced being transformed by the gospel, you are the bride of Christ. 
And there is not a pretty bridesmaid. There is not an ugly word from a friend. There is not an accusation from Satan. There is not a week or a month or a year of underperformance that is going to taint that celebration in a name written in heaven and a bride being joined with a groom forever and ever and ever. Our best rejoicing, Jesus says, comes in celebrating names written in heaven. That there is a heavenly father who loves you like a child, who enjoys your very presence, who wants to spend forever with you. Your names are written in heaven. So let us stop defining ourselves by what we do and start enjoying the father for who we are. Let's pray together. Jesus, it takes great courage to undo everything we've ever known, to leave our performance behind and trust that you will fill it with who you are making us to be. That takes courage. That takes faith. But I pray and I plead that we would be a church that rejoices not in what we do, not in what we don't do, not in what we see, not in what we don't see, not how big we grow, not how obedient and faithful our people are. Those are good and wonderful things that make us happy. But I pray above everything else, we would rejoice that our names are written in heaven. In your name we pray. Amen.